0: Top of the inning to you. Welcome to the Irish Baseball Podcast, brought to you by the Irish American Baseball Society. If you love baseball, and if you love Ireland, stay tuned for a discussion of all things Irish baseball. Hello and
1: welcome to episode 33 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Becker. Today I'll be talking with Shane Barclay of Japan Ball. Shane is a Chinese-Irish American who plans out baseball-themed tours to Japan and other parts of the world. He also works with the World Baseball Classic, which is scheduled to return in 2023. Later in the show, we'll hear from Dave Wills, the radio play-by-play voice of the Tampa Bay Rays. You'll be able to hear Sean Clancy's full interview with Dave Wills on episode 34 of the Irish Baseball Podcast, premiering on April 25th. Right now, let's welcome Shane Barclay. Thanks for joining us, Shane. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So you're the president of Japan Ball. Why don't you give me a little information about that?
2: Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, Japan Ball is the leader in international baseball tours. Uh, Pretty much the only one, as far as I know, doing what we do, which is taking baseball fans from mostly in the U.S., but anywhere in the world, to Japan and other international destinations for baseball-centric tours. And we also um, create and disseminate news and information about Japanese baseball in the English language uh, for curious and international minded baseball fans.
1: So in some recent episodes, we talked with Phil Riccobono, who was an international scout for the Phillies, and he worked primarily in Japan and Korea. So you're familiar with baseball out there and the different atmosphere that they have at games. What's something that an American traveling over to Japan to see a game. What's going to surprise them about that atmosphere?
2: Well, there's a lot. Um, the one thing you'll recognize is they're still playing baseball in the field. You know, the base paths are the same and, and uh, you know, there's green grass and whatnot, but everything else <laughs> is a bit different. Um, but to answer your question, to not get you know, too carried away with all the differences, the main thing is, is the crowd and the way the crowd interacts Uh, with the game and and the way they're locked in to every player Um, because the way that they cheer is that every player on the offensive team has his own specific song complete with (laughs) lyrics and percussion that everyone knows. In fact, teams will even put it on YouTube, the songs before the year, and people will practice so they're ready from game one knowing the songs. And so while a player is at bat, there'll be an Owen Don, which is basically the, the official cheer section that was really leading the way, kind of like in a college uh, football game or basketball game, how there's the student section that's really leading the way with the cheers. So the Owen Don will be cheering and most of the rest of the stadium will also be singing the song or at least um, banging uh, little plastic baseball bats or beer mugs or, or whatever it is to uh, to the song. And then that'll continue throughout the entire game for every player with his own song on offense. The away team, the fans travel really well and they have their own designated sections. They can all sit together and sing together. We'll do the same thing while their team is at that. So it's kind of like, a, like I said, college football game or, or maybe a um, soccer game in, in uh, South America, kind of the way the, the crowd is engaged throughout the entire time. Yeah. That's just a huge difference. And it doesn't matter the score it doesn't matter where the team is in the standings. It doesn't matter what inning it is. Like they're going all game long. So how do
1: you find a lot of American fans adjust to the way the game is played in Japan? Do they come back and are they bored when they get back to the U.S.? (laughs) Or is it just one of those experiences that catches them off guard?
2: Well, I think it definitely catches them off guard because until you experience it yourself, you don't really understand it. Um, But really, what I found is people come on our tours and it's not like maybe they just thought they would come one time just to experience it. But it's incredible how many people come back. In fact, I'd say close to a majority of the people will come back because they want more and they want to go to more ballparks. And it's just such a unique way of experiencing the game as a fan. But also a big part of it, I think, is that in Japan, they're playing a little bit more of a throwback style of baseball. You could maybe say, you know, more pure style if, if you want to in, in a sense of more small ball um, there's more strategy. Um, the analytics haven't had as big effect on the on the play on the field like they have in the U.S. So a lot of fans who are a little more purist, I'd say, uh, really like the Japanese version of the game. I think that actually applies to a lot of countries abroad, but Japan really is um, kind of the the ultimate example of you know bunting, hit and run, uh, fundamentals. You know those sort of things that you learn growing up that you don't really see as much in in the big leagues nowadays so just to follow up on that
1: you're talking about japan being more of a small ball maybe an old school style of play and i'm going to ask you for a little bit of analysis right now because the most recent phenomenon to come over from japan is Shohei otani who definitely doesn't play yeah. the small ball style of play is definitely the uppercut swing is trying to hit for power an analytical dream, if you will. So, is he more of an anomaly to come out of that game, or was he somebody that for years they were just developing him to be the perfect major league player coming out of Japan? Or are there some of those players who do have the uppercut swing and do hit for power?
2: Yeah, that's a great question and and a great point. Otani, I'd say, always did things to the beat of his own drum a little bit. Uh, for example, high school baseball is arguably a bigger deal in Japan than professional baseball. And to be recruited to play at an elite high school um, is a huge deal in Japan. And it's kind of unheard of that you would, if you're being recruited to go to the best high schools that compete for the national championship every year, um, that you would say no. You know, did that and he wanted to stay in his hometown. It was more of a... I don't know rural is the right way to describe it, but definitely not big city. And he wanted to stay and do his own thing. Even if you look at his path to the major leagues, he took his own path in that he could have waited and made a lot of money, way more money. He could have signed a nine figure contract if he had just waited a little bit, but he wanted to go when he wanted to go. And he wanted to be able to prove himself in the major leagues in the U S and he did it no matter what people, said you know and he's a super respectful guy of course it's not like he's some sort of rebel but he has a lot of conviction in his own way so i do think he's more of the anomaly i mean that, obviously there are power hitters in japan and if that's kind of your calling card you know you'll, you'll definitely see some guys with big uppercuts but typically the japanese teams are importing their power they're allowed to have a handful of foreign players on their teams And typically those are guys that are throwing really hard if they're a pitcher and they're hitting a lot of home runs if they're a hitter Uh, because it's just not that common to have guys who really are swinging for the fences.
1: And I know there have definitely been a lot of guys who had a cup of coffee in the major leagues or maybe were those 4A guys who never quite made it to the majors but were really, really productive in the minor leagues who then head over to Japan and they continue their professional career over there. What do you see from some of those players as they try to adjust? I mean, we've all seen Mr. Baseball, I'm sure, the movie from the 80s. (laughs) But how do some of these American players adjust to the Japanese game?
2: You know, you don't really know until they get there. And uh, the Mr. Baseball type player who's a slugger at the end of his career, that still happens. Uh, But I think that you're seeing a little bit of a shift because a lot of those guys – are just looking for the payday like they pay well in in japan for foreign players and some of those guys are kind of coming over and then like kevin ukulis is a guy who did it recently um and he came over and and just didn't really play that well and you could tell he was just saying oh i'll get this guaranteed nice payday at the end of the my career rather than you know fighting for a spot or going out unceremoniously in the u.s um adam jones went over recently and and He's clearly physically not the player he was, but he really bought in and, it's, and became a leader in the clubhouse and the fans loved him and his teammates loved him. And, and so that was a little bit more of an exception to that kind of image of a guy who goes over once his skills are deteriorated. I think more now you're seeing the guys who are closer to their physical prime, but aren't getting guaranteed major league deals and want to go over there and prove that they can you know have an opportunity and prove that they can perform if they have a consistent job and make good money while they're doing it and then maybe even come back um, and which you're seeing more often. So, and it, I mean, I know it doesn't quite answer your question about their adjustments. I mean, really, to a man, you, you talk to these guys who have come over and we have like an interview series with Japan Ball uh, where we've interviewed a number of foreign players, Americans that went over to Japan. Um, and it's all about your ability to embrace the new culture, um, to em- embrace the baseball culture, and just the, the bigger picture life adjustments you have to make. And uh, being okay that things are different, being okay that the training regiments are different, um, being willing to learn a little bit of the language, try the food that you think is weird, you know those sort of things always are the things that correspond to playing well on the field. The guys who just stay in the hotel, keep to themselves, kind of turn their nose up at, at the different methods in Japan. They end up not having a good time and not playing well. And the team will maybe let them go even before the season's over, or at least won't renew their contract. Um, They're guys who really embrace the new culture. A lot of them end up staying. Brandon Laird, who is in the U S as a pretty decent player has is like a cult hero in Japan and he just loves it over there and he's just embraced it. And he probably could have come back to the U S because of how the numbers he's put up, but, uh, he doesn't want to, because, you know, he's loved there. They call him sushi boy, because I guess, cause he just loves sushi and he's a big guy. Um, and, uh, you know, it, I think it's just like in the U S if you're having a good time and, and you enjoy going to the ballpark and you're comfortable, you're going to perform, Um, And some guys think that they can do that or they think, Oh, it's just baseball. I can do it anywhere, but it's not the case. You really have to be open-minded to succeed in a different league in a different country. So somebody calling Japan
1: ball and trying to plan a trip to Japan to see baseball games for that particular purpose. What are some of the things you're going to recommend to them? If I don't know anything tangible about Japanese baseball, what are you going to suggest for me? What are some of the things that I have to see when I'm over there?
2: So much. But, uh, yeah, I'll narrow it down for you. Um, I mean, most people are going to Japan or going to Tokyo. And, and the beautiful thing about that is there's five NPB, Nippon Professional Baseball teams uh, within uh, really six, like within an hour train ride of Tokyo. So most people are going to go to Tokyo Dome. And I don't blame them for that, especially because the Japanese Baseball Hall of Fame is attached to Tokyo Dome. And the Tokyo Yamiori Giants play there, and they're like comparing them to the Yankees of Japan isn't even doing it justice. Like they just are by far the most dominant team in the history. I say do that because it's kind of obligatory. However, my preferred stadium in Tokyo is Meiji Jingu Stadium, which is just down the street, basically from the Tokyo Dome, a couple stops on the train. And you know they're kind of the the forgotten, uh, you know, they're like the Mets to the Yankees, I guess you'd say. But their stadium was built in the 20s, I believe. Um, it was built for college baseball because amateur baseball is a bigger, like I said, is arguably, arguably a bigger deal still in Japan than professional. And, and back in the day, there was no professional baseball. It was all amateur. So it was this great stadium that was built um, as historic value. Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig played there. It's one of the few active stadiums that um, Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig have played in. And uh, it's just a unique experience. The fans are great. It's a, it's a very uh, comfy stadium. And they have this cool umbrella dance that they do whenever the team scores a run. I do bust out these colorful mini umbrellas. And they're like bobbing them up and down and singing a song. And it's just such a unique experience. So you know, that would be my recommendation for Tokyo. And then if you have to see a couple other stadiums like because and you're willing to leave um, Tokyo... Um, there's Koshien Stadium, which is similar to Jingu in that it was built for amateur baseball, but it was built for high school baseball. It has an all-dirt infield. Another old stadium that Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig played in. It's got ivy on the outside of the stadium. The cr- crowd is rowdy, and the the Tigers are kind of have the most rambunctious. They're the lovable losers. They're very. It's easy to compare them to the Cubs because the ivy and and the lovable losers and the rowdy crowd. But um, it's a it's a fair comparison so yeah i'd say those and then if i could just sprinkle one more in it would be hiroshima the carp going down there is great it's in the southern part of japan it's great because first of all you can go to the peace park and the atomic bomb museum which is just a very powerful experience i compare it to if anyone's been to the 9 11 museum in new york it's a similar um, just really well done but just obviously very difficult to see as well but the whole grounds are beautiful and and the museum is very powerful. And then the stadium is the newest one in Japan. And um, you go, you walk in the train station, it's probably a little less than a mile, but it's just a sea of red. The team is red and everyone wears red and there's food and drink on either side of this pedestrian pathway. And you're just walking in the sea of red to the stadium and it's a beautiful ballpark, very modern. And there's a view of the bullet train from inside the stadium. You can see the bullet train going by and, in great views of mountains in the background. So, um, yeah, those are the four stadiums I'd say, uh, as a quick run through them, but, um, yeah, anyone who's a curious baseball fan, uh, they got to check out those ballparks.
1: So you mentioned Babe Ruth twice when you were talking about those stadiums and I had heard something recently and I'm sure, you know, if this is true or maybe it's just a rumor, but, let me know if you've heard the rumor that towards the end of world war ii babe ruth was so popular in japan that the u.s government was considering having him record a message to the people of japan that would be played over radio signals telling them to try to get the government to surrender because babe ruth was still so popular 20 years after he had been there his legend continued and the U S government actually thought that might play a difference in a world war.
2: Yeah. I've, I know, uh, I know of that story. I wish I could, I knew it in more detail. Um, there's a fantastic book called Banzai Babe Ruth, um, by Rob Fitz, who has written a bunch of awesome books about Japanese baseball from, a um, you know, in the English language, he's pretty much, you know, there's just a couple authors who are doing it. And, uh, Banzai Babe Ruth, they talk about that letter and, um, I feel like he did make a radio announcement in Japan at some point that was broadcast to the masses. Um, Something along, you know, of trying to – the U.S. had him do, just like you're saying, to kind of garner more public support in Japan. I think it didn't go over that well just because tensions were too high. Like I said, I don't want to get too into detail because I don't remember it all. But he was – yeah, he was – kind of had like a godlike status – Maybe I I shouldn't use the religious figures, but, you know, in that way, he was just a larger-than-life figure like he was in the U.S., but in Japan he was such an anomaly. Also because no one was hitting, like, home runs like that in Japan. Like, he would come over there on these tours, and people were just – he was doing things that no one had ever seen before on a baseball field. And, of course, the gregarious nature. Like, there is a story of they did a parade – And there's like a million people in Tokyo and they're all clamoring around him. And uh, I think the babe was a guy who didn't mind having his ego stroked. And he loved coming to Japan where like the whole country just worshipped him. And uh, yeah, it wasn't surprising that they tried to, you know, really influence the nation through him um, because, uh, you know, he, he was that loved. So Shane Barclay from
1: Japan ball. Let everybody know how they can get a hold of you.
2: Yeah. Our website is japanball.com. I recommend signing up for a newsletter. If, if you're curious about our tours, um, you can be kept informed of, of what we're doing this year in June. We have a USA West coast baseball tour uh, that I'm excited to, to do that. It's um, 11 games, six major league and five minor league or independent. Um, I'm doing that because as of today, you can't travel to Japan as a tourist because of COVID still. I'm hoping that that's just a matter of time before it opens up. But just in case, we're doing this USA West Coast tour. So if um, if anyone wants to check some uh, boxes of their ballpark bucket list, I'd be happy to do that. I won't get too much into it, but we're also going to the Netherlands, to Japan, to Korea, Dominican Republic, and maybe Bahamas this year. So The newsletter is the best way to be informed, uh, but we're also on social media. Twitter and Facebook is at Japan Ball. Instagram is at Japan Ball Travel. Uh, Through all those platforms, we are letting people know about what we're up to travel-wise, but also just trying to entertain and inform and educate about Japanese baseball primarily, but just international baseball in general. We're big believers in the unifying aspects of baseball and, in that baseball is a global game. So, uh, if that, if those are ideas that resonate with you, I, I ask that you follow us because you're probably going to be a friend of ours.
1: Thank you so much for joining us, Shane. You're welcome, Rick. Thanks for having me. It was fun. We'll be talking to Shane Barclay again this summer on the Irish baseball podcast, when he'll discuss his Chinese Irish American background and his work with the world baseball classic. I'm Rick Becker. Recently, Sean Clancy, founder of the Irish American Baseball Hall of Fame, talked with Dave Wills, the play-by-play radio voice of the Tampa Bay Rays, for the show The Crack in the Bat on Irish Baseball TV. You can see the entire conversation by heading to irishbaseball.org or waiting for episode 34 of the Irish Baseball podcast when I will play large portions of it. This is Wills recounting how he tossed his hat in the ring for the job he has done so well for over 15 seasons.
0: In 2004, uh, I heard rumors that the Tampa Bay Devil Rays were looking for a radio guy, and I actually sat on that for about a week. Um, I didn't do it, uh, wasn't ready to do it because I I just moved into a a new home uh, in, in further south of Chicago in Orland Park and was really kind of comfortable with what I was doing. I was doing White Sox pregame, postgame, and some play-by-play. I was doing UIC Flames basketball play-by-play. I was hosting a show with the Notre Dame athletic director, Kevin White, uh, doing some pregame football and basketball for Notre Dame, and then doing a TV show in Chicago. So I was really doing like five or six jobs, but it was paying all the bills and then some. And so I was kind of like, yeah, I'm not sure. The double Rays aren't very good. Uh, I haven't heard great things about the team, and – Lo and behold, I just thought to myself, you know what? It's one of 30 jobs in the world. So I better give it a shot. I sent the tape in. Uh, There's a mutual friend of ours, Rick Vaughn, who I understand on that particular day had just been in with a group of people who dwindled the pool of almost 300 applicants down to 10. And uh, somebody walked in and said, hey, I've got a envelope here with your name on it. Rick, out of the kindness of his heart, decided to play the CD. And I became number 11 of the final 10 and then Uh, the rest is history.
1: For Shane Barclay of Japan Ball and Dave Wills, radio play-by-play voice for the Tampa Bay Rays, I'm Rick Becker and this has been episode 33 of the Irish Baseball Podcast.
0: Thanks for listening to the Irish Baseball Podcast. The Irish Baseball Podcast is a production of the Irish American Baseball Society. Visit us online at irishbaseball.org and connect with us on social media and remember, there's no place like home.